Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. So these eight verses of Shikshastakam accentuate the significance of this aspect of Siddhanta, or spiritual understanding, wherein we can see through the revelations of the sages, and specifically Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself, who uh, was a sage extraordinaire, so to speak, the fact that when it comes to having a conception or being, I guess it's not having a conception because who could conceive of what we learn from people who have actually been there. You can hear all you want about what it's like to visit New York City, but all the explanations in the world are not going to prepare you for what this experience is actually going to be like. There's lots of streets, there's more people than you can imagine, the place never shuts down, uh, you can go from the from this street to the from the lower section to the higher section, you can see all classes of men in New York. Uh, you can go to all, New York City and see all cultures there. You have the Chinese section and the Korean section, you have the Italian section, you have the Jewish section, and the Indian section, and the American section. So we can get all these explanations even regarding, well, a vac- well, do we really want to say a vacation place? You can get all these conceptions about New York. People can tell you, I've been there, and I was here, and I went to Broadway, and I went, you know, I went to the Bowery, Brooklyn, and I met the the old New Yorkers there, and they, you know, they have an accent you wouldn't believe. <laughs> you can hear all these things, and they're not really. They'll give you some some glimpse into the culture, um, and you can you can imagine times have changed even in the last hundred years. Now somebody can tell you about like New York and you can say, oh, okay. You can imagine just hearing about it verbally. Somebody just gave you a verbal description of, I've been to New York. I've spent some time there, some few months, and I've experienced all these. And they could explain it to you as deeply as they could. And they could even write write a book about it. You know, my time in New York and uh, a visitor's guide to the cultures of New York, a visitor's guide to the areas. And that's okay. And in this culture now, as technology goes forward, you can even go deeper into New York. You can go on YouTube and you can see videos. Uh, this is what Broadway's like, this is what this section's like, that wow. section's like. You know, you can you can hear the people talking, you can see the people on the streets, you can go to the Chinese area in a video and see this is what it is. And give you more a sense of it. But it's still limited. 
you're not going to, even if you go through the YouTube or through some other media, uh, you know, even on a big screen and you get the tour of New York or Once Upon a Time in New York, or, you know, you, until you go there and smell the smells and, and feel the feel the sidewalk under and just, you know, actually experience firsthand the hustle bustle, even with modern technology, you're not really going deeply into knowing what the experience is like. So you're at a disadvantage until you actually experience it. No one can deny that. Similarly, when we look at spiritual life and we enter into scriptural explanation or what the sages and the saints of different traditions have left behind for us as far as a road map to not only our inner self but the inner self of the Supreme, how much justice can it do to the subject matter? It's limited. They can give us some glimmer, but until we've actually been there, until we've actually experienced it, first of all, it's hard for us to accept what they're saying as it's hard. We can, we can through some real earnest desire on our part, try to enter into the mysteries of what they're saying about the supreme or the absolute truth or God or whatever nomenclature we want to give that other side of existence, if we even want to give it any significance at all. Do we even believe that there's anything beyond what we experience around us? Well, there's a lot there's a lot to be said for there probably is. Uh, there's been a lot of really, really sages people, saints and sages and whatever names you want to give those people that have had a glimpse into their inner self and into a, a spiritual realm. There's so much written and so much provided for us from so many varied traditions, I think we as a society would be foolish just to chuck it all off as it appears that modern society for the most part has done. They, they come up with their arguments in that if, you, if there's God, show me your God. Well, that's happened before. And some people have made these arguments uh, with the saintly sector. And they've been challenged. Show me your God. Under extremely rare circumstance, sometimes they've seen that other side as a matter of the other side making his own statement or making her own statement, their own statement. We learn of, uh, you know, this, the, the boy Saint Prahlad and uh, his father was just adamant that I'm God. 
I'm the controller of everything around me. I've been given benedictions that exceed anybody here. By the creator of the universe, I got these benedictions. So in this realm, I'm a god, and you're telling me you're my son. I'm telling you, learn from me, be like me. I'm the I'm I'm that example of all that you can be <laughs> in the material world. I have all the power, I have all the strength, I have all the people following me. And you keep telling me that you're worshiping somebody else? When I have the creator of the universe basically worshiping me through giving me his benedictions? And scripture says, well, in this particular instance, there was a revelation. And even the person that challenged, show me your God, he was shown in a very profound way. The Lord personally appeared right then, right there, under the most. He didn't have to take birth from a mother. He just came right out of a pillar and said, Here I am. You asked for me? <laughs> okay. And we have the Kazi. Similar situation. He was... He was putting up some some challenge. Why are all you people, you know, engaged in this this noisy worship of God? I, really, you're creating a disturbance, and and I'm in charge here, and this has got to end. He sent his ministers out, or his henchmen, whatever you want to say, his police force out, and. Tried to break up the, the the party, the God party, from having a party, and they were they were dancing in the street, and they said, "You can't do this. You can't dance and sing and play in the street and worship your God." You know, people aren't gonna. This, this isn't allowed here, and uh, and God appeared to that person in a different way, but that same God, <laughs> that same pillar God who was quite frightful it's hard to imagine the uh, the ghastly for form that a, that the godhead can take when he wants to get his point across half man half lion the bottom half is a man arms and legs but hands like a lion with nails and the lion head and the ferocious mane with so this same personality appeared in a, even in a dream and said, don't interfere with my party. When my people want to party in the street, you let the party go on. And if they want to party all night, it's all right with me. And if you stop the party, well, I'm going to stop you. So he had this dream, that this, this, this vision of God in his dream, and the Lord put his hand on his chest and said don't let this happen again and as he removed his hand those ferocious nails scratched his chest in the dream he woke up and there were scratch marks on his chest so when we hear these descriptions when we when we hear 
descriptions in that are presented for us it's hard to grasp and put our mind around what's being presented uh, we're only used to the world around us and if you really think about it when you try to enter into the mystery of even your inner self it's quite a daunting task but this is the easy route the easy route can take us to the same point of revelation that these sages and these saints had the easy route through their explanations of what these revelations mean and what's been written down in regards to these revelations can give us a deeper meaning and a, a point of entrance. And what we've been hearing here now for this one Anucheta, this one bit of spiritual tattva, of spiritual truth, given by Jiva Goswami, one of those saints. He's taken one verse from this huge body of work, the Bhagavatam, spoken by this one devotee who was relieved of distress, an elephant on a heavenly planet who'd forgotten all about God and was just enjoying in the world, but he was put in a difficult situation and it became so difficult, became more and more difficult as time went on for him. The difficulties in his life just kept compounding themselves. It's like, I'm not going to be able to shake this off. Every time I think I got the upper hand, I'm pulled down again. Every time I think... I can, I can work my way out of this situation with my own strength. And this is an elephant. And an elephant has a lot of strength, I mean. So he's thinking he can, he can, he can work his way, work through this. And finally, after, well, what's, what to him is, is a hundred years, a thousand years, what's the, what's the difference? A hell of a long time. Eventually, he realizes, I'm not going to be able to do this by myself. And he, his prior seriousness in spiritual, in the pursuit of spiritual revelation himself, comes back to him. And he, he sings these prayers to the Lord. And from one little set of couplets we've been studying now, Jiva Goswami said, taken this one little set of couplets and he's just exploded up to try to give us some glimpse into what is the nature of God. One set of couplets in one huge 
volume of literature, 18,000 verses of the Bhagavatam. He's taken one, and now this one he's expanded in this 47th Anucheda, and he's trying to give us some idea that God is very, very special. He himself is special. His name is extraordinary. His form is extraordinary. His, when he descends in the world to show himself to mankind, he may even look like one of us, but he's extraordinary. He's nothing of this world, although he can appear in this world. And he can relate with us in this world. So the original verse of this Anucheda, spoken by Gajendra, the Lord, Bhagavan, Bhagavan, the Lord that has all opulences, wealth, strength, fame, beauty, knowledge, and renunciation. Those are some. Those are the main ones. So when we say Bhaga, Van, Bhaga, we're referring to these opulences and all the other opulences that the Supreme has. But this, they've, when, we, when we hear this nomenclature, Bhagavan, applied to the Supreme Absolute, we generally think of this, the, the man that's wealth, the most wealthy, God, there's nothing God doesn't own. He has it all. There's, there's no one stronger than he is. There's no one more famous. Even in the world of man, God still trumps everybody. Everybody's heard of God in this place, even here. There may be so many famous people, and but practically any man in any culture when you say God, he knows who you're talking about. Wealth, strength, fame, beauty. The most beautiful personality. We, can, we conceive of these things in relationship to the Supreme. Knowledge. No one's more knowledgeable than God. And no one's more detached than God. So these six qualities are are highlighted when we think of this terminology, Bhagavan. Wealth, strength, fame, beauty, knowledge, and renunciation. So Gajendra is praying here. Finally, he's come to his senses. He needs help. Everything's working against him. And he says, Bhagavan, he, he's, he's remembering all that he's known about the Lord that he learned in the past, and it's all coming back to him now. It's all, all, you know, bubbling up, and he's he's remembering. I there's somebody that can help me. This is certainly not uncommon in human society. Of course, Gajendra was an elephant, but he was situated on a heavenly planet. He wasn't like your normal everyday, you know, run-of-the-mill elephant. 
So he's, these things are coming back to him. As I said, it's not uncommon. We generally, when we get in a distress, dress, distressful situation where we see no way out of our own, we can't do anything ourselves, we will rely on God. There's, there's even a saying that in a foxhole, there are no atheists. So even those people that have an atheistic tendency to think really there's no God, when they're confronted with death in the battlefield, then all of a sudden they may even call out to the Supreme. It's a natural thing. We are part of that Supreme Personality and we have a natural tendency to to call out when we when we're put in distress. Nobody wants to be put in distress, but this is this is not well as some of these sages said, I forget what was it Bhakti Siddhanta or maybe even Bhakti Vedanta, this this place is not a place for a gentleman or gentlewoman. It really isn't. It's nice and we got trees and flowers and birds and bees and cows. It all looks very nice, but if you could leave and go to a place where you could have this same life, this same exact life, sans all the negative aspects, I'm sure we would all try to buy a ticket. If we could go to a place where no one in our family would ever get ill or die. If we could go to a place where where whatever we wanted would immediately be given to us without having to hold down a nine-to-five job for... 50 years of your life. (laughs) I mean, I could go on and on. No anxiety. (laughs) Imagine that place. But in this place, we are sometimes put in a foxhole. And no matter what the hell we believe, (laughs) at that time, when death is, we're staring death in the face, then we take shelter. So Gajendra is, he's finally come to the conclusion, he's only fighting. He's an elephant, but he's only fighting a little crocodile. But it's in the water. And the crocodile, that's his place. That's his domain. He's, you know, the elephant is, is an animal of the, of the land, and the crocodile is an animal of the water. So in the water, the crocodile is is reign supreme. So Gajendra's losing the battle. Although he thought he could get the other upper hand, his size, his strength. By all indications, I mean, when he walked in the world, he walked through the forest, everybody scurries away. So he has this sense of himself and now he's been put in an awkward situation, which material life seems to always put us in 
at one time or another. We are confronted with that 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 situation that just knocks our socks off. We just we how I can't make it make it through to another day. Either mental anxiety or physical anxiety. It's uh, thank God it isn't every day. <laughs> There's hardly anyone that goes through life without being confronted with that some situation that just is seems unimaginably unbearable. You'd rather be any place else than where you are right now. So Gajendra's at that point, and he's these prayers are coming back to him. And he's saying, Bhagavan, that personality, he has no birth. Action, name, form, virtues or vices. He has no birth, action, name, form, virtues or vices. Like I'm accustomed to here. I'm a man, I'm an elephant of the world, so everybody I know has a name. But God really has no name of the world, and he has no form of the world, and he has no actions that he has to perform in the world where I can't get from the morning to the evening without so many actions. I do have to knock down a couple trees and have something to eat, you know. I have to keep my family going, so I have to find a partner. Uh, you know, all these... I have to have action throughout my life just to survive. God's not like that. He doesn't need to do anything. Uh, and what I experience in my life is based on how I live my life what my virtues are and what my vices are determine how my existence is. God's not like that. So Gajendra, he's, he's, these thoughts are coming to him. God has no birth, no action, no name, form, virtues or vices. However, for manifesting this place, creating and destroying the material world, he appears to take these things on. He accepts these perpetually by his internal potency, by his spiritual energy, not by the energies that control the world around me. He has his own energies. So we're at a very interesting point now in these Anuchetas, discussing now the name of God and how it's spiritual. And all I can say as we get to the next, to the end of this Anucheta, you're going to be quite thrilled by the what Jiva brings out in relationship to all this understanding and how he takes this one simple prayer of Gajendra's and just, he just, he breaks it wide open and shows what is the purpose 
of all these specialities in relationship to the Supreme, to Bhagavad. So we'll continue with the discussion of the name here. Try to get through this. It's in two and a two sections. The first thing is the glories. We're just finishing up the glories of the name. So a couple more points there, and then we'll go into if this name is so glorious and it's non different from the Supreme, then if I'm hearing God's name, why am I not experiencing personally? If it has the same potency, we read, we chanted these verses. What's the translation to the first verse? So many names you've manifested and in them invested all of your power. So if the name is as powerful as these prayers say, that they, you know, and as Jiva Goswami is bringing out in this Anucheda from his Bhagavat Sandarbha, if the name is this powerful then why am I not experiencing it? Because every time I hear in the scripture that someone is able to see God, it, boil, it just blows them away. They, they just immediately fall into ecstasy. So I'm hearing here that the name is equivalent to the form. And simple remembrance of the pastime is equivalent to the form that all aspects of God are fully and absolutely transcendental and equally potent. In your holy name alone you have invested all your transcendental energies. All of them. That would include the ability to just boil me over just in the name. Because every time I hear somebody saw you, they were boiled over. They couldn't talk. They couldn't even, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know to whether to fall on the ground or, or start dancing. Why would I hear the name? That's not happening. So let's quit here and then go on to what Jiva has to say in that regard. So thus it is seen that the name liberates a person. The name alone is, well, if you saw God, you're, that's it. Material life is over. You're never going back. The pleasure you can get from a vision of the Godhead, a pleasure you can get from actually seeing the Supreme, there's no, there's no coming back here from that experience. It's that profound. At least that's all what, what all the sages say. They all just are like, wow. They, I'm ready to leave it all behind. Can I go with you? So, thus it is seen that the name can even give this same liberation. Even if simply alluded to, the scriptures say the name is as powerful, even if you allude that, even if you just, you're talking about something else and you mention the name of God, it's just kind of in there, it's that powerful. Just as the form of the Lord springs to mind, when overcome by fear or envy of him. By fear or envy of him. Both these are efficient ways to remember God. 
Well, we know what happens when fear overcomes us. Then, yeah, there's could be remembrance. And we hear from Scripture, we hear of incidents where people have been envious of God, like a Haranyakasipu, or like the Kazi in the, in the Sankirtan party. They had some envy, and, and what happened? It can also bring a remembrance of God. He can show up on the scene. So from the Brahma Purana, here we have another evidence regarding this, this potency in the holy name. If one continuously chants Sri Hari's name, even in a state of mental agitation, you don't have to be at Santi, Santi, Santi. You don't have to be the yogi sitting in the Himalayas in the most ideal of circumstances and to have cleared your mind of all the the mental, the vrittis, all these, the mental stuff that we carry with us, the likes and the dislikes. You don't even have to get to that stage of yogic attainment, samadhi, which is like, that's the high stage. Dhyana, pranayama, all these stages of yoga from stage to stage, contemplation, breath control, bodily control, yamas and niyamas, throwing away what's troublesome to your consciousness and embracing those things that are advantageous to clear consciousness. So even this verse from the Brahma Purana is saying, if one continually chants Sri Hari's name, even in a state of mental agitation or anger, and really, anger is like the epitome of being mentally disturbed. Once anger takes us over, we've lost it. You know, we're not at our right state of mind. He will definitely become free from bondage and attain liberation. So one that's chanting the name of the Supreme, of the Lord, even if he's mentally deranged, mentally agitated, in a state of anger, the name is so powerful that it still is effective. Now, tell that to your yogis. What a change. What a change. And this is the glory of Sri Krishna Sankirtan. Even in this, in this age, this is more effective than all the yogic siddhas, the perfections attained by those who gain mastery of their body and mind and senses. Simply by the holy name you attain liberation. As did Sisupal, the king of Sadi. That's a whole story. But I'm going to go on with this Anacheda. Shruti also, in referencing, I'm sorry, in referring to the syllable Om. Okay, religious scripture also, when we talk about Om, that divine combination of letters, states, Om is the most accessible name of the Lord. It is called Tara because it carries the chanter across the fear 
of material bondage. In this way, the name has innumerable glories. So an objection can be raised here. We're talking about chanting the name. So someone could object, well, how can you how can you approach this transcendental name for the Lord because it seems too easy to be true? I can't just say, God, show yourself to me and God's going to appear. That just doesn't really happen that often as much as we'd like it to. And if we really knew what we were asking for, we would probably be a little less reluctant to ask for it until we were fully qualified. But that's also a very esoteric subject. Luckily, God can adjust everything, the Supreme. So even if even if he does appear and you don't know what to say, he can immediately enlighten you. We have the story of Dhruva Maharaj. He wanted, the, he wanted a benediction so much, and in order to get it, he got a guru. And, he, and the guru said, if you want this, you should wait. You, a five-year-old does not go into the forest and start doing austerities to see God. Wait until you grow up a little bit. Then I'll be your guru. Then I'll tell you what, what's the right way to approach God. And Dhruva Maharaj said, no, no, I don't have time to wait. I'm not that patient. You're thinking of somebody else that has patience. I was born in a family of warriors. Everybody in my line is a, is a, is a kshatriya. We're warriors, we're kings. And when we want something, we go for it. We don't wait. We're not patient. We use, this is our nature. His guru said, okay, what choice do you give me? You're asking me for spiritual instruction? I have to give it. That's my, that's my nature. Your nature is you have to have it. My nature is I have to give it. So we have to find some compromise. So here, here's a mantra. You chant this mantra and you control your senses and God will come to you. Here's the mantra. Here's your secret mantra. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. You just say these names of God. Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya. And Dhruva said, okay, you got it. He went off to the forest and he chanted the mantra and I forget the sequence but the first month he only ate some some berries every six days and he chanted his mantra. And then the second month rolls around and then he only had a leaf every 12 or 15 days and he chanted his mantra. And the third month comes around and he only has a sip of water, you know, every 20 days. And he chanted his mantra. And the next month comes. And he's only, he's given up eating and drinking. 
and he just takes air every month or whatever. And next month comes around and he doesn't do anything but chant his mantra standing on one leg. His austerities are so severe for a five-year-old boy that Mother Earth, the, the, the planet, is, is feeling his foot on her as the greatest heavy burden, heavier than any of the mountains on the planet. And he's quit breathing. The whole universe is like gasping for air because his austerities are that powerful. They actually go to the head demigod, Brahma, and say, you got to help us out here. This, this, this kid is sucking the life out of, our, out, of, out of the universe. No, actually the demigods went directly to the Lord at that time. This is back at the beginning of the creation. The, uh, the term of Swayambhuva Manu, the first Manvantara. This mantra was so powerful that it drew the attention of the Supreme Lord. And he came and he gave some benediction. So an ejection can be raised. It is our common experience that words that are spoken with the help all words, all sound, they come with the help of the tongue and the air, the palate, the lips, and so on. You can't make an expression, a sound, without the assistance of this. So how can words be accepted as eternal? That's a pretty good objection. I don't, if you think, you're telling me God's name is eternal... And I'm telling you every word that I've had experience of, it, it starts with the tongue and the palate and the air and, and the lips and out comes a word and then it's gone. And you're saying that all these characteristics of God are the same and that would include his name. So his name is also eternal. So how can it be eternal? It's made with material components with these different parts of the human organism. We're making a sound. It's a sound, a nomenclature that delineates the supreme absolute, with his, which is eternal. And this is Jiva's, Jiva's way of pounding the post. It just keeps, keeps us on our toes. Think about this. When you say God's name is eternal, but you know every sound that you've ever experienced is, is, is temporary, and everything that's being used to make the sound is temporary, then, then how can you substantiate this? So Jiva goes on and he substantiates it. Let me tell you how. The answer is that the tongue and mouth do not create words. They only pronounce them and convey them to others. Words exist eternally. Let me explain that a little bit. Because we can say that not all words are eternal. 
but there are eternal words. And what do I mean by that? Cultures can come and go, and in cultures they can develop languages. But what we learn is there is rhyme and reason behind the universal manifestation. And that rhyme and reason, of course, is the supreme. In manifesting the universe, that supreme personality, he has his own words, which existed before the creation. And he infuses the creation with those words. Different, different societies of man may look at them differently, but most all societies of men will say that the words of God are holy, meaning they're otherworldly. So what's being said here, and not to confuse it with other what we would call mundane movements of air, which don't are not eternal, is the fact that the Veda the original sound vibrations coming into a universe from the transcendental realm, those in and of themselves are eternal. They are themselves avatars. They're descending. The Veda, the, the knowledge, all the alphabet of what we would refer to as spiritual knowledge which also is infused with everything lesser than that, which would be everything we experience in the world. So that's what Jeeva's bringing out here. Words are actually eternal. But specifically, those words that are coming from the absolute realm. And there are worlds, words that come into our realm from the absolute realm. Some of those words delineate the Supreme Himself. Some delineate other things. Well, actually, there are some spiritualists, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu himself, could actually take the whole alphabet, teach it to his students in such a way that he shows through his erudition, through his, through his intelligence, that if you really look closely, every single word is God. So, Lord Chaitanya himself, <laughs> he, he did this in his classroom. Actually, every word delineates the Supreme. It's kind of like what we hear that someone would experience in self-realization. When they're fully immersed in transcendent consciousness, they can see nothing but the supreme in everything. So we hear about this, that you can reach a level of spiritual absorption where you can't see anything but God everywhere and in everything, in every action and every being. So that's the point that's countering this argument that it's actually just the material tongue and the sounds and the lips and the 
palate that's making a sound. Yes, it's making a sound, but it's making a sound in the same way that something can be illuminated. So that's the explanation. It's just like flashing a flash. The, the vibration that's coming out from a body is simply like a flashlight being turned on and exposing what's there. It's already existing. So these sound vibrations, these sound vibrations about, and the names for the Lord, about the Lord, and, and, and that are indicative of remembrance of Him and everything about Him, is it's simply just like that. The body is simply giving light to that vibration. This takes us to the jumping off point into the next section regarding why we're not having the experience. As fire burns dry grass to ashes, so the holy name of the Lord, whether chanted knowingly or unknowingly, unfailingly burns all reactions of one's sinful acts to ashes. Just as medicine of the highest curative potency will surely act even on a person ignorant of its efficacy. Even if taken by chance, so too the name of the Lord will act even if uttered as a matter of coincidence. I'll stop there for this evening. Thank you so much for your association.